personally. Well, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer and we'll begin um, as we look at George Herbert. Glad you're here this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are um, our God and King, that you are the Creator, um, and that you reign on high, because we can, uh, we can look to you, we can trust in you, we can be sure that you reign sovereignly and that you're in control of all things. We thank you that you do that in wisdom and in justice and in love. Lord, we thank you for uh, our Savior, and we thank you that you've um, bought us with his blood. We thank you that you've made us your children. Um, and Lord, we, we want to get to know you uh, more and more in the truth uh, of the scriptures and in the power of your spirit to walk daily um, in your light. And so we pray that you would help us to do that this morning as we look at George Herbert and his poetry and what it meant in his life and uh, in the life of the lives of so many. Um, so be with us in this time this morning um, that you be glorified in, in what's said this morning and, and what we discuss in your name. Amen. So uh, there's no, absolutely no way that I would get through everything that was in this little packet uh, in the amount of time that we have. So my goal is to uh, get you just enough interested this morning uh, with George Herbert's poetry that uh, you might do some research on your own and, and look into it uh, on your own time because there's, there's a lot of it, uh, but it's worth the look. Um, so we'll look uh, as quickly as possible just as kind of uh, his life. Um, and go through and try and get to his poetry as quickly as possible because like I said there's so much in this packet uh, that Piper walks through and, and he does it in a way where he's 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 kind of got two conversations going because he's showing you on like as he goes through it the the poetry of George Herbert but he's also going through some uh, historical significances and some themes and characteristics and so uh, I, there was no way that I could recreate that. So um, I've broken it up a little bit differently um, just so we can kind of um, dissect, or not even dissect it, but just look at it and then hopefully retain enough to, uh, like I said, spur you on to further study. So uh, I guess I should, so I'm not used to moving two different things here. Here we go. Okay. So I got to move twice. All right. Uh, so George Herbert um, was born April 3rd, 1953, died uh, just a month before his 40th birthday. Um, sorry, uh, you know, I went through this whole thing thinking, I hope I didn't put 19 on any of these because I kept doing it. <laughs> I kept doing it as I was going through. So thank you. Yes, yeah, 1693. I don't know how I got 1953, but 1693. So 1593. So I just, I just, com I just switched them, right? 1593. It should be 1593. Thank you. Every time I typed in a 16, because on the on, on one of the next slides it's like 1609, 1620, you know, and I was and I kept putting 19. I thought, man, I'm gonna leave a, I'm gonna leave a 19 in here somewhere. So thank you. Yeah. So that should be April 3rd. I saw Dennis's face, and I was like, 
man, I did something wrong here. Uh, it was what? The agent in Wales. Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, so 1593, he was born. He died a month before his 40th birthday. Um, he was born and lived uh, in Montgomeryshire. And you can, does this thing have a light? No, it does not. Well, that wouldn't it. So this uh, shows you kind of where in Wales, Montgomeryshire was at the time, though it's not really called that anymore. And, uh, and then this map of Bimmerton we'll come back to in just a minute, but that kind of shows you where his church was right there, St. Andrews. That's London. So this is kind of the southern, southern part of, of England, UK. Um, and so that's where he was a minister uh, for the last three years of his life. So, um, all right, here we go. So a few life facts. He was the seventh of ten children. Um, and he, his dad, Richard, passed away when he was three. So he really never knew his dad. And then 12 years later, when his mother, pictured here, Magdalene, uh, remarried, um, he was on his way into um, college. And so uh, he never really had a dad in the home, so to speak. One of his uh, older siblings, I guess the eldest brother, when his mom married Sir John Danvers, uh, he was only barely older than her oldest son. Um, he was 20 years younger than she was. So, um, but they, uh, Richard had a sizable estate, so when he passed away, they were, they were well taken care of. Um, and, and I kind of see evidence of that in finding this picture of Magdalene because I was actually looking for a picture of um, his wife for the slideshow rather than his mom. But I'm guessing that Richard's estate was sizable enough that his wife would have been pictured and not the poor pastor who died, you know, at the age of 39. So... Uh, he was, a, he was an excellent student all the way through his, his schooling um, at Westminster Preparatory School. He began writing essays at 11. Um, Piper notes that those essays, some of those essays would have uh, been published eventually, not obviously right then at that time, but they would be published uh, just because they were connected with him at some point. And then at the age of 15 in 1608, 1609, depending on what sort you look at, um, he attended Trinity College at Cambridge, in, in Cambridge and began studying the classics, really proved himself, graduated with a BA, second in class of 193 in 1612. Have I been saying 19? Okay. In 1612. <laughs> oh, man. Um, second in his class, and then in 1616, uh, gained his master's and became a fellow of the university there at Trinity College is the way I read that. But then in 1619, he uh, was elected the public order of Cambridge University. And at the time, uh, this would have been a really big deal. And I don't know if I can express that enough, um, but it had a huge impact on his life because as he goes through the next 11 years of his life, even to now, um, well, I, I, let me back up. Even at 11, he was showing uh, interest already in poetry. And writing. Um, I think he had an inclination as he got up into Trinity that, that his life would entail, or, or his calling in life would include writing. And, uh, and so 
when he gets to this uh, order um, position with Cambridge, he, um, he begins to see the world in a different way. Uh, he begins to experience things that he hadn't experienced before as far as being involved with the king's court, uh, which would have been a really big deal um, in what he did and something that he hadn't been a part of before. And so as he goes through this time, uh, Piper kind of mentions a couple times that he's kind of going through this inner turmoil of being called to ministry, but being in public service. And, and somehow that pulled on his heart and there was a tension there that kind of intensified by the time he serves in parliament. Um, and, uh, and a lot of his poetry has to do with that. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll provide some, some uh, quotes in a minute that, that he uses to explain that tension in his life and why his poetry was such an outlet um, for those things. Um, in 1626, he was ordained as a deacon of the Church of England. Uh, in 1629, can you guys see that? I blocked it out. Uh, 1629, he married jo Jane Danvers, who was a distant relative of his uh, father, uh, his stepfather. And uh, they didn't have any kids, but they did adopt three nieces. Um, and so he was uh, about four years away, three or four years away from death when he married her uh, because he died in 1633. And so um, that bottom one is, is 1630. He became an ordained priest at Bemerton, and he was the parson of Bemerton whenever he passed away. And so most of his adult life, he uh, suffered from um, the effects of tuberculosis or what was then called consumption, I think. Um, and just to give you a glimpse, uh, well, I'll just do it this way, so I don't have to go. Bemerton, this is, this is uh, straight from Google today. You can see the church, uh, St. Andrew's there. Um, and so really, the, uh, this little uh, wind vane up here has his initials on it. Um, I think his, his uh, body rests here uh, with the church. And uh, these two pictures, this is him. Um, in the stained glass window, George Herbert, you may not be able to read that. And then this is Nicholas Ferrar, I guess is how you say that. Um, and he was a good friend of, uh, of George Herbert. And uh, he's, he's holding um, a piece of paper. Um, he's holding, a, George is holding a, a musical instrument that he played, viol. And um, so I'm going to read you a couple things that just kind of put his, his uh, life in perspectives to some degree to set us up to speak about his poetry. Um, so we're going to look at his poetry next. And uh, his, his collected uh, work of poetry is now called The Temple. Um, at the time, he gave this to Nicholas Farrar um, just a few weeks before his death. And so I'll go through some of that in just a minute. Um, but first, let's talk about um, this consideration that he, he, he passes to um, his friend before his death. So he's, he's weeks before his death, and um, he kind of knows it. And so his friend, um, Nicholas, sends a fellow pastor, Edmund uh, Duncan, to see and check on George. And, um, and he pulls out this book of poetry, and he, he gives it to this um, this friend who's checking on him to send back to Nicholas. And he says this, he says, Sir, I pray 
deliver this little book to my dear brother Farrar and tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul. Before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom, desire him to read it, and then, if he think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let it be made public. If not, let him burn it. For I and it are less than the least of God's mercies. And so he sends this to him. And now I'm going to back up again a little bit because a couple things happened uh, before this. But, but this is how we get to his poetry. Had we not had this event, um, we probably would never be speaking today about George Herbert, is what Piper says. If it wasn't for his poetry, we wouldn't really know him. And so a couple things happened as he's going through college, as he's going or, or off to college. Um, one of them was he, um, he, he writes to his stepfather because by the time he gets to uh, become the orator, his stepfather's passed away. And, and so he, he stays in touch with, with him over the years. He eventually makes him the executor of his will. Um, I think after their marriage, even though he wasn't in the home, he would go and visit his mom um, a lot and, and see um, Danvers there and, and became closely, close with him. So in, in, in 1619, not 1916, in 1619, when he was elected the public order, he sends this, uh, this letter to his stepfather and he says, uh, uh, talking about his, his position, he says, the finest place in the university, though not the gainfulest, for the orator writes all the university letters, makes all the orations, be it to the king, prince, or whatever comes to the university, to requite these pains, he takes place, he takes place next to the doctors, is at all their assemblies and meetings, and sits above the proctors, and such like gainesses, which will please a young man well. So he writes this about the position when he gets it. Keep in mind, he's already uh, known he's going to be a writer to some degree, and then 11 years later, um, as he goes to uh, become a minister in 1930, um, he writes this um, about the position, or about what he's learned. He says, I can now behold the court with an impartial eye and see plainly that it is made up of fraud, titles, and flattery, and many other such empty, imaginary, and painted pleasures pleasures that are so empty as not to satisfy when they are enjoyed. So as he's going through his time, he's, he's um, sensing that he needs to be working for God, right? He has this idea that his, his life is, uh, is the Lord's and he needs to be serving in that capacity rather than in public service. Um, so it, this tension begins to grow and grow throughout that time, but he, he really struggles with it where and that's one source of of uh this um conflict that he talks about in his poetry when he's when he's given this consideration to uh about his writings and then another one was in uh 1627 when his mother passed away he went through uh quite a, a spell of depression and some of his um, ups and downs in lives had to do with with that as well um so when, when we talk about his mom, her, her being such a part of his life and uh, an impact, he, he makes a vow to her, and, and I'll um, talk again about this a little bit later if we get to it, um, but he, 
he writes a letter to her. He's, he's, you know, 15 when he goes off to Trinity College, and somewhere in that first or second year, depending on what source you look at, he writes uh, a couple of sonnets for his mom, sends them to her with a letter. And so keep in mind this is well before, um, you know, he goes into the ministry, but he, he sends a letter and, uh, accompanying the poems, and, that, and, he, and he lamented, Piper says he lamented the vanity of those many love poems that are daily writ and consecrated to Venus and that so few are writ that look towards God in heaven. And then he says, uh, this is uh, what Piper says his vow is, that, that my poor abilities in poetry shall be all and ever consecrated to God's glory. So even at, at Trinity College, he begins to know, okay, look, if I'm going to write, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write for the Lord. This is, this is what I'm going to do. Every word that I write in poetry will be consecrated to God. Um, and so we'll come back and, and see how that works out for him later. And then the other part of kind of the context of his poetry, um, Piper goes into um, is just this, uh, the, the existence of Calvinism in the world at that time. And so um, the this, this split from the Roman Catholic Church, um, all of the ministers uh, of the Church of England at the time would have been Calvinists. And so, so Piper, and, and, and he even points to Gene Beeth in the 1980s and his doctoral dissertation to show that uh, when we talk about Calvinism today, it has different um, uh, connotations than it did then. And so he, it, I'm not going to read a lot of this part of it, but, but Piper kind of goes through and, and, and shows that at the time, um, the Calvinists would have been... Um, bent towards kind of the idea of being more free in Christianity, whereas today Calvinists are strict and exclusive and, and kind of binding on people. Uh, so I don't know if you can see that, uh, what I'm trying to say here, but, um, you know, the world would look on Calvinism today in a different way than it did then. And uh, so in, in, in that world, um, a lot of the writers would, would talk about Calvinism and talk about how kind of they're, they're probably too happy or they're probably uh, making things sound too free. Like you can do whatever you want because, uh, uh, let me read this, uh, this quote here and this will help if I can find it in my papers here. Um, so this is, uh, this is Gene Veith in his doctoral dissertation. He says, how is it that a theology associated with determinism, austerity, the impoverishment of the liturgy, and Puritanism, with all of its negative connotations, can produce such winsome religious verse. Calvinism attacked now, meaning present day, modern times, 1980s. Calvinism attacked now for its strictness was originally attacked for its permissiveness. Far from being ascetic, Calvinism was in conscious reaction, was in conscious reaction to monastic asceticism, which rejected marriage and sexuality and insisted upon fasts and mortification of the flesh, far from being a theology of fear, quote-unquote, Calvinism offered to believers who had been taught to continually be terrified of hell the assurance that salvation is free and it can never be lost. And so he, he goes into this part to explain the context of his poetry with 
these Calvinistic tendencies because so much of his poetry um, shows his Calvinistic tendencies, um, which we would see as a good thing, right? The sovereignty of God primarily, God's providence, the love of Christ, um, and, and, and the covering that we have and the assurance. And so these kind of comforts um, at the time um, over the years, too, would bring uh, much comfort to many souls because it's, it's almost like, um, as I'm looking through this, it reminds me a lot of the Psalms. I mean, we see David going through these struggles, and we can associate our struggles with what he's facing as he's um, writing these Psalms to the Lord. And so I, I feel like this is very similar um, where as, as George goes through different things in life and he writes his poetry about uh, God's comforts, his saving work, his redemption, um, through his depression, through his uh, health struggles, that we have those same things. And so we can easily associate. So, so over the centuries, um, we see a lot of, uh, of critics, um, uh, theologians look to George and his poetry um, for those comforts in the truths of Scripture, which include Calvinistic tendencies, right? Any thoughts or comments at this point? I feel like I've been really rambling on, but I've taken a lot of time for this. Any questions or thoughts? Anything I need to clear up other than the years that I messed up? So his poetry is collected in, the, in, the, in what's called now the Temple. Um, Farrar uh, published it in 1933 when he received it. I think it was uh, through a few more editions in a few years, but it's a total of 167 poems. Sorry, I'm going to catch up on my screen here. So. 1633. See, I did it again. I can't believe that. I can't believe it. I went through this so many times. I'm gonna, I know I'm going to put 19. <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Art. In, anywhere else you see 1900 about George Herbert, just know that's wrong. There are... Maybe some things that I caught, like, uh, well, like Veith, he's really from 1985, but George Herbert is not. Uh, so 167 poems, and, and, and these critics and poets and authors and theologians through, uh, through the years who have praised um, George Herbert for his poetry um, are amazed at his, like, comforts that people draw from it, um, but also from his uh, inventiveness uh, are some of the words he used, his craftsmanship, um, his technical um, excellence. And so to have 167 poems with 116 unrepeated meters, I'm not a poet. I don't know a lot about uh, what that means extensively, but I can tell that it's a big deal. That's, that's what I know. So um, I, I don't think I could come up with one or two poems with two unrepeated meters, uh, but he did a good job of of bringing new forms um, is what um, Piper talks about, that, that there's, the, there's beauty in, in the poetry, um, and he kind of gets to this later, that it's not only the poetry that's beautiful, but it's that the poetry is beautiful because it's writing about a beautiful God. And, and that's a lot of what he's trying to get in this, in this chapter that I'll probably poorly uh, express. Um, so his poetry does establish him as the poet goat, uh, goat as in greatest of all time, 
We've seen that. If you haven't seen that, that's what that's talking about, the greatest of all time. And so he, he draws those things both from a specialist perspective, perspective and a non-specialist. So people who know poetry look to George Herbert and know he's outstanding. Uh, people that don't know poetry uh, would look at, look at his poetry and go, okay, that's impressive, right? And I, and I draw something from it. It's meaningful and impactful um, for reasons that I don't even know, probably. So let me read a couple of these uh, accolades that people give, and my apologies for not being able to explain uh, or, or express very well who these people are. So you just take the names, and if they're not familiar with you, uh, as if they're not familiar with you, I, I'm in the same boat in a lot of that, so I had to look them up and see, oh, okay, who is this, who is this? Um, and so I'll let you do that on your time, though. So... Um, Richard Baxter said, Herbert speaks to God like one that really believeth the God and whose business in this world is most with God. Heart work and heaven work make up his books. And so I, I, when, when I, you know, I read that and, and hear him say that like one that really believeth the God, um, that says a lot. I think uh, Someone in here once told me, you know, how Brad Johnson used to go around saying, if we, if we really believed what God said, what would that mean, right? Um, and, and other people probably have, have had the same encouraging words. So um, to say that he really believeth in God means a lot. Um, T.S. Eliot said that uh, the exquisite variations of form in the poems of the temple show a resourcefulness of invention which seems inexhaustible, and for which I know no parallel in English poetry. Uh, so George Herbert would be included at this point in any volume of British poetry um, as significant and as uh, among the top of the list. Um, Peter Porter writes that the, uh, the fact that Herbert is perhaps the most honest poet who ever wrote in English does not prevent his being also one of the most accomplished technicians of verse in the whole Western canon. Um, and, then, and then it also mentions Sam Coleridge here, and Sam Coleridge was um, uh, in, in the 19th century, I believe. He was a poet and critic of uh, British uh, literature, a, a philosopher, a theologian, um, and, and Piper talks about how he was also an opium addict. And so um, just the idea of having um, the context of Calvinism and Arminianism, Arminianism um, and I think I may read a, a quote in a minute if I can find it, uh, just how those deal with the will. And for Sam Coleridge, this opium addict particularly, he, he was constantly struggling with, his own efforts, his own ability and decisions and desires uh, with being able to gain control. And he found a, a lot of comfort um, in the poetry of, um, of, of George Herbert. Okay, so... Um, I think I've gone through and explained enough of kind of the Calvinistic um, context that we can, because we are familiar with Calvinism, 
and uh, the characteristics of it. I think we can look at um, some of the poetry here for the rest of our time and, um, and see what, what, what causes Piper to include George Herbert in this volume of biographies. Um, and so I'm going to walk through and, and read some quotes here from some of these uh, poetry, uh, from some of these poems, and, and hopefully I can try and thread in some of what Piper's talking about because um, he does a really good job of, of progressing through, um, like I said, the context of the time, um, the things in George Herbert's life that bring out the poetry, and, as well as the, the sovereignty of God, the love of Christ, um, pure and, and consecrated devotion to him um, in the things we do. And he, and he tries to bring it to um, kind of a head with saying that, um, and he tries to describe and define what um, he calls poetic effort. And um, when he does that, he's not really talking about everybody needs to be a poet or everybody needs to write poetry or poems uh, because obviously we don't all need to be doing that. Uh, but George Herbert definitely did, and so I think it's to just glean from his effort with, with his poetic efforts in that, um, that, that we devote our endeavors to the Lord. It reminds me a lot of, of Psalm 1, that um, it, it says everything he puts his hand to, he prospers, right? He prospers in all that he does. Uh, we can see that with George Herbert. He devoted himself to um, writing poetry excellently for God's glory, and it showed um, the excellence of it. And so Piper is, is using um, this progression uh, uh, through these poems to, to try and get to a definition of that where we all kind of take away this poetic effort in the things that we do, in the things that we are called to uh, serve God in and serve one another in, um, whether it's uh, com you know, uh, computer technology, program development, um, whether it's uh, arranging um, flowers, what, whatever our call is, if it's accounting, um, that we're devoting our hearts and our minds to doing this with, with poetic effort. And then he is really also um, pointing us all to, to be spokesmen for the gospel and to be um, sharing the glories of God verbally um, in the things that we Maybe the devotion times that we write um, are expression to others. And um, so he walks through this progression, but um, we'll, we'll take a look at some of these. So the, the uh, and let me, let me just say that the title of this chapter um, really is called While I Use, I Am With Thee. Um, and it's, it's part of one of the poems that we'll look at in a minute, um, if we can get to it. And... And so Piper really tries to um, explain how it, it wasn't just that George Herbert experienced God more when he wrote poetry um, or that his poetry was about his experiences, but it was that um, all of that it came out in, in, in his poetry and that as he... Um, I don't know what the word is, as he took the time to carefully express the glories of God, he um, came to know God better. Um, and so I, I, I think that you can probably all take something in your life, 
some skill, um, something that you've done for long enough to be considered what today's language would call a master, right? The 10,000 hour rule that we all have something that we've done for long enough, whether it's doing the dishes or um, something at work that we do, um, that as you do that and you found yourself knowing that this is what God has called you to do and you do it better and better each time, in doing those things for the Lord, you, you get to know him in a better way. Um, you become more, more familiar with his comforts, with his provisions, um, and with his control over all things in those things that we do. And so, so we'll walk through some of this, some of this poetry, and uh, I'm sorry I don't have an English accent to, uh, to read it to you in, because I'm sure it sounds much better. Um, but let me... Let me say this before, before I get into this, that um, this valid he made to his mom, um, Piper would come back and say that, um, that he fulfilled his vow, um, just so you know this as we read through it, that um, he kept his vow in a radical way. Not a single lyric in the temple is addressed to a human being or uh, written in honor of one. And so he writes all 167 poems of the temple uh, as a record of his life with God. Um, as I use, I am with thee, right? That's, that's um, kind of the description of this whole, the whole uh, chapter. Herbert was moved to write with consummate skill because his only subject was consummately glorious, is what Piper says. The subject of every single poem in the temple um, says Helen Wilcox is one is in one way or another God. So, um, so we'll start with uh, start with this one called the Temper, uh, or maybe part of one. I don't know if this is the whole one. It's just this is included in in the section here. I don't know if these are just portions of the poems or the entire poems. He says, "How should I praise thee, Lord?" How should my rhymes gladly engrave thy love and steel? If what my soul doth feel sometimes, my soul might ever feel. And it's called a temper. And so um, Piper talks about how this, this idea of, of tempering, uh, the, the temper that the Lord puts on George Herbert's heart um, comes out in this, that he wants to engrave on his heart uh, the love that Christ has shown him in salvation. Uh, so it's, it's uh, a lot of different aspects tied in here. Um, I feel like I'm almost to where I want to be, but I'm not quite there. Forgive me for a second here. Okay, here we go. Um, so this idea of, of beauty and, and beauteous words uh, should go together, um, just like what I wrote when, when he's, he's consummately uh, he's, he's writing about the glories of God because, and, and he's writing gloriously because what he's writing about is gloriously. Um, so he's, 
I'm going to read a little bit of this that, that Piper writes because it describes it well. He says, Herbert loved crafting language in new and powerful ways. It was for him a, a way of seeing and savoring. And if you can imagine, Piper, there's like an hour and something long uh, video on, on YouTube that's, that's worth watching because he basically goes through this. And, and if you can imagine Piper talking about this, I mean, you know, he's, he's spitting all over the place. He's, he's demonstrative, his head, his face. So, you know, I'm no Piper, but, uh, but imagine, imagine Piper as I'm reading some of this and you'll get part of that video. Uh, Herbert loved crafting language in new ways and powerful, and he'd be yelling too, right? Uh, it was for him a way of seeing and savoring and as he's doing, he's seeing and savoring and showing the wonders of Christ, the central theme of his poetry was the redeeming love of Christ. And he labored with all his literary might to see it clearly, feel it deeply, and show it strikingly. We don't have a single sermon uh, that he ever preached, but what we have is his poetry. And here the beauty of the subject is wedded to the beauty of his craft. What we are going to see is not only that the beauty of the subject inspired the beauty of the poetry, but more surprisingly, the effort to find the beautiful poetic form helped Herbert see more the beauty of his subject. So I'm going to read that again because that's wordy. Uh, we're going to see not only that the beauty of the subject, the love of Christ, inspired the beauty of the poetry, but more surprisingly, the effort to find beautiful poetic form helped Herbert see more of the beauty of his subject. Uh, the craft of poetry opened more of Christ for Herbert and for us. So how often do you see this in life, right? Uh, as you put forth the effort in your skill or in your relationships, um, I think parents know this well, um, the more that you uh, show love to the kids, the more you end up loving the kids. The more you do for them, uh, the more pains that you take for them, uh, the more you end up, uh, end up loving them. And so um, I think he finds that same, same effect in his poetry. Um, we kind of talked about the technicality of that. So, um, so he, he writes in... Um, his poem, this is from uh, Forerunners, I believe. Uh, True beauty dwells on high, ours is a flame, but borrowed hence to light us thither, sorry, bar, but borrowed thence to light us thither, beauty and beauteous words should go together. So it's this idea of his, his beautiful subject, his beautiful poetry showing his beautiful subject, but also he gains a better idea of how beautiful his subject is by his poetry. Uh, beauty orig uh, originates in God. It, it lights our little candle of beauty here as a way to lead us to God. Therefore, beauty and beauteous words should go together. They should go together as a witness to the origin of beauty in God and as a way of leading us home to God. And that's what I think his poetry does for so many uh, like the opium addict, is, is um, not only shows the glories and the beauty of, of Christ and of God, but also brings us closer. Um, and I think that's why so many have, um, have enjoyed his, his uh, poetry. Am I on the same screen? Yes, we are. Okay, perfect. 
So he talked about his, his consecration fulfilled gloriously, um, that, that none of his lyrics were um, written about anything other than God, or no, no one other than God. Um, so he, he, in, he believed that we all should be, and, and I think if he was saying it, it would be secretary, maybe, instead of secretary, uh, secretary of, of thy praise, and, and two, the brim full. Um, so let me read a couple of these. This is called um, Providence, I believe is his poem right here. So he says, O sacred Providence, whom from end to end strongly and sweetly movest, shall I write, and not of thee, through whom my fingers bend to hold my quill, shall they not do thee right? Of all the creatures, both in sea and land, only to man thou hast made known thy ways, and put the pen alone into his hand, and made him secretary of thy praise. So I, don't, I can't read it, secretary, it just doesn't fit. So I think you'd say secretary. So he, he really believed that not only his life should be a secretary of God's praise, um, but that all of our lives should be a secretary, uh, secretary of, our, of God's praise. Herbert believed that since God ruled all things by his sacred providence, everything revealed God, everything spoke of God, and the role of the poet is to be God's echo or God's secretary. Um, and so, in, uh, in, in his depression uh, with his mom, in his battles with health, um, in, in the turmoil, inner turmoil, increasingly intense uh, turmoil of his calling, you know, he writes a lot of this poetry. And so there were a lot of ups and downs um, as he's, um, you know, bending his fingers around the quill. Um, and so in one poem... Let me read this. It's called Dullness. Why do I languish thus, drooping and dull, as if I were all earth? Oh, give me quickness that I may with mirth praise thee brimful. And so, in, in, in spite of, of the ups and downs, the things that he faced, um, you know, he recognized this, this need to um, be God's secretary of praise and to do that to the fullest extent. Um, and so, so it's amazing how Piper just goes through, you know, these different elements of his poetry along with his life and, and showing how it comes out. Um, he goes on to, to talk about the ups and downs and, and how sometimes with his health he would have uh, really good days. And so um, in, in a poem called The Flower, he writes, And now in age I bud again. After so many deaths, I live and write. I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. Oh, my, lo oh my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. Um, and so you can tell just, just the, the difference of the highs and lows that he faced um, and how he constantly looked to um, God's grace in, in the times that he could write. Um, he loved to savor and speak uh, the saving, restoring power of God. He says, I love to shew his power who once did bring my joys to weep and now my griefs to sing. 
and that, that's that one uh, took me a while to to really get um, my head around. Um, I mean, I love to shoe his power. Who once did bring and, and my joys to weep, and now my griefs to sing, um, and just his. You know, all, all these critics say it much better than I, but it's just incredible, um, the craftsmanship um, that he shows in his, in his poetry. Um, we've got about 15 minutes, so I want to get through a few more of these and then maybe um, open it up for some discussion of, uh, of what we discussed so far. Um, so Herbert discovered in his role as a secretary of God's praise, that the poetic effort to speak the riches of God's greatness gave him deeper sight into that greatness. Writing poetry was not merely the expression of his experience with God that he had before the writing. The writing was part of the experience of God. It was in the making a way of seeing more of God. Deeper communion with God happened in the writing. Probably the poem that says this most forcefully is called the Quiddity, that is the essence of things. It says, My God, a verse is not a crown, no point of honor or gay suit, no hawk or banquet or renown, nor a good sword, nor yet a lute. It cannot vault or dance or play, it never was in France or Spain, nor can it entertain the day with a great stable or domain. It is no office, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> no office, art, or news, nor the exchange or busy hall, but it is that which while I use, I am with thee, and most take all. Um, so he, he realizes that when he writes his poetry, um, it is a gift from God that he's experiencing God in a deeper way. Um, and his poems that uh, while his poems are that which while I use, I am with thee. Or as Joseph Summer says, uh, the writing of a verse gave to Herbert the quiddity um, of the spiritual experience. Or as Helen Wilcox says, the phrase makes clear that it is not the finished verse itself which brings the speaker close, closer to God but the act of using poetry, a process which presumably includes writing, revising, and reading. Um, and, and later on in this chapter, um, it gets to the point where uh, Piper explains his idea of poetic effort, uh, but also gets to a, a couple of things, um, not, so, not, not as uh, commonly spoken uh, about when um, George Herbert comes up, and, and that's his collection of Proverbs. He, has a, he had a huge list. He would collect short proverbs, and this was something common of thinkers of the day. Um, and, and so Piper goes through some of those. And then he also talks about his love of music. Um, but but gets to a point of meditation, and I think this, I'm not going to get to that point today, but, um, but I think this does a good idea of just encouraging us um, to, in this busy world, set apart some time to slow down, if you, if you don't do that, um, and, and to, to meditate, what meditation really is, thinking about uh, the, the glories of God's word, um, the glories of salvation in Christ. Um, 
So I'd, I'd issue that same encouragement. Um, so for Herbert, this experience um, of seeing and savoring God was directly connected with the care and rigor and subtlety and delicacy of his poetic effort, his craft, his art. Uh, and so he says in his poem called Praise 2, this is Praise 2, Wherefore, with my utmost art, I will sing thee, and the cream of all my heart I will bring thee. Um, so he just, he has this really um, powerful way of um, expressing himself to the Lord, but expressing the Lord in his poetry. Um, so I, I think that's probably as much as I'm going to get through with his poetry today, and, and maybe it's, I don't know, 50, 60% of what's in here. Um, and so let's look at just a, a little bit of impact here. So um, open it up here for, for some comments and thoughts. You know, what, what impacts you, um, particularly um, when we're talking about, you know, this, this consideration where he uh, sent his... Uh, sent his collection to Farrar and said, look, you know, tell, tell Farrar, you know, he's sending the messenger, tell Farrar, read it, you know, if it's good, you know, make it public. If not, you can just burn it, because I, I, I'm nothing compared to the mercies. This is nothing compared to the mercies of the Lord. What, what strikes you by that? What impacts you? Okay. And, uh, and in our world today, we're really encouraged to to take our greatest skill, uh, and, and just the fact that he's so renowned now for his poetry, right? To have to have nothing published during his life, but now I mean, it is it is the real deal. Like I don't know, right? He's the goat, and uh, and to hear him say that, it's it's a stark contrast to what we see today where you've got to maximize and promote and milk everything you can out of your, this is your gift, right? Uh, this is what you do. Um, so yeah, for sure humility. What else? Off track, yeah. What impacts you uh, about about Herbert's consecration that he gave uh, for his poetry to his mother? We discussed that briefly. Well, somewhere fifteen, seventeen. I mean, whenever he made that, sent that to his mom. Yeah, yeah. To realize that that at that age, I mean, I think fifteen to seventeen year olds today. You know, much different world, much different environment. Um, to realize not only that he had a talent or a gift. I think some kids can kind of see that. Um, oh, they have whatever gift or talent. You know, by that age, that's not that uh, uncommon. But to be able to recognize, like, this is why I'm going to do it, and to commit to it, and then to hold to it, that. I mean, in, in 167 poems, it's it's all honoring the Lord. That there's no, there wasn't anything about his mother, even though he went through those things with his mother. It wasn't anything about 
you know, the world, the, 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 the pitfalls of politics, right. Don't come up. Um, so I think that's significant. And I, and I think, uh, it, you know, as I, as I think about that, uh, just in my own life, I think, okay, am, am I really consecrating what I do to the Lord? Am I really doing this for God's glory? Have I really made that decision to say, this is why I do what I do, you know? Um, and I think that it's it's not uh, it's not unusual or it's not strange that we see uh, scripture exhort us to do that um, that we would excel when we do that when when we devote our endeavors to the Lord um, that we realize what we should have earned. Um, within his sovereignty and wisdom and control. Um, we have like one more minute, so I'll just open it to, up to any other thoughts or comments because Ken hasn't made one yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Letha. Thank you. Good job. So at the beginning of this last night, I was thinking, you know, I, I'm kind of curious, like, because I asked Brad as we were tooling around, hey, have you ever heard of George Herbert before? He's like, I, I don't I don't think I have. And I know I haven't before this, right? I never heard of George Herbert. So I was I was going to ask, you know, hey, who who's ever heard of George Herbert tomorrow? Who, who's ever read his poetry? And I was almost confident that Aletha's name would go up, and I was just going to sit down. I was just going to let her come up here and, and finish this out and take control, but... No, thank you for those comments. That's good. Uh, because as I, as I was looking at that, I'm like, man, I should really know these names if I'm going to get up here and use these quotes. But I was just going, I don't have time. But I did look them up, and it was, it was that. It was like, you know, it's not, you know, it's not some nobody that's, that's saying this about George Herbert. So it was impactful. Well, I guess, yeah, praise the Lord for him, you know, sending his poems in, and we can figure out who he is. But uh, I, I hope that's enough to uh to whet your appetite a little bit because um it, they they are uh, amazing to read um i can only imagine what they sounded like from you know his own voice um and and, and just uh piper makes the comment you know we don't have any sermons but can you imagine what his sermons would have been like i mean they would have been extraordinary i'm sure um uh, to hear him you know get up and preach and teach but uh, i think we're out of time so um we'll just dismiss here thank you